these transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Once upon a time, an American industrialist had the idea of going into the jungle of South America to produce rubber. He knew nothing about producing rubber. His men knew nothing about producing rubber. They just assumed the processes that worked in the USA would work in Brazil. They fought the natural conditions and pushed the native people of the area into doing things their way. After 10 years and millions of dollars, they just might have learned a lesson. Or maybe not. Today I have the story of Henry Ford and his attempt to create a utopian rubber plantation and transplant a little part of the American dream into the jungle on the 195th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Good Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half an hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic that I personally would like to know more about. Then I write it into a story that I hope will be entertaining. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that I hope everybody is surviving the coronavirus. I'm working from home these days, and it looks like it might be that way for a while. The big question, of course, is can my wife stand having me around all day long? We'll find out. Look, a lot of people are saying that the world might be overreacting. First, try saying that to somebody who's lost a loved one. But besides that, I would rather overreact and have nothing happen than to do nothing and have the worst happen, you know? Of course, the biggest problem is that small businesses are going to suffer. So do the world a favor. Once this is over, shop small businesses for a while. Help them rebound, will you? Okay, Fordlandia. The story's been in my queue for quite a while. I sort of resisted because it's been done by other podcasts, but finally I thought, let's do it. When I first wrote this, it was so long, it could have been a two-part episode, so I trimmed it quite a bit. There's a lot I didn't put in, but I think I've got the basic story. If you would like to know more, I suggest the book Fortlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City by Greg Grandin. I use that book a lot for researching this episode. So now, anyway, why don't you grab yourself some of that wonderful black liquid as I tell you the tale of a man who tried to force his will onto the jungle. In 1928, Henry Ford placed an entire disassembled town in the hold of two vessels and sent them to the middle of the Amazon forest. Henry Ford brought a city from the United States to Fort Lundia in the middle of nowhere. Fortlandia was one of the most prosperous towns in America. I mean, South America. But its inhabitants had to live as if they were in the other America, North America. Before Henry Ford, only the extremely wealthy could afford to own an automobile. Ford figured out a way, through the use of an assembly line, to manufacture cars so middle-class America could afford to purchase one. But he was always looking for ways to sell them for even less. 
To do so, he attempted to control or manufacture all his resources. One he couldn't was rubber, and rubber was expensive. Since many parts of the automobile, like hoses, belts, gaskets, and of course the tires, were rubber, that was a problem. Rubber came from two places, originally from Brazil, where rubber trees were native, and from the English, who stole rubber tree seeds back in 1876 and now grew rubber trees in their Asian colonies. Wherever Henry Ford got his rubber, he paid a hefty price. So if Ford figured if he could manufacture his own rubber, own a plantation, he could create the Model T for even less. By the time he decided to start his own rubber plantation, he was on a bit of an ego trip. In the late 1920s, Ford was a genuine American hero who went from a farm boy to an automobile manufacturer through determination and hard work. He became one of the world's richest men. And the truth is, there wasn't a harder worker than Henry Ford. And to work for Ford, your education and history weren't as important as your enthusiasm and dedication to the work. In fact, he always had a distrust for those so-called experts. Almost single-handedly, he changed the way people lived their lives. Besides the automobile, Ford changed America in other ways as well. Factory work was something new in America, and most factories didn't pay well, under $2.5 per day. Because of this, worker turnover was very high. Ford's executives figured that to find 100 workers, they had to hire almost 1,000. The Ford plant experienced a 10% daily absentee rate and a yearly turnover rate of about 380%. The solution to the high turnover of employees, much to the investors' horror, was to pay more. Ford decided to pay his employees $5 a day, more than double the average pay at the time. When Ford made this announcement, other business tycoons thought he was crazy. Many predicted that this would be the end of the Ford Motor Company. Other auto manufacturers were appalled. One called the idea the most foolish thing ever attempted in the industrial world. So on January 5, 1914, Ford made this plan public. At one stroke, we will reduce the hours of labor from 9 to 8, he told the press, and add to every man's pay a share of the profits of the house. The next morning, 10,000 people showed up at the Ford plant looking for work. Ford became a national, if not world, sensation. Even more so when he cut the workday from six days to five. He became a hero to everybody, and the newspapers began running the story. Magazines all over the world featured Ford, telling the tale of the Model T, known as the People's Car, how he created the modern assembly line, and how he revolutionized workers' pay. He thought the way he did things, the way he lived his life, was the correct and only way to do so. His ego grew almost daily. The Impressionists somehow got around that Henry Ford is in the automobile business, said the Reverend Samuel Marcus, who headed the Ford's employee relations office. It isn't true. Mr. Ford shoots about 1,500 cars out the back door of his factory every day just to get rid of them. They are a byproduct of his real business, which is the making of men. You see, Ford thought that paying his employees well gave him the right to tell them how to live their lives. 
With more money and free time, he feared, his employees would have more time to drink, gamble, or pay for sex. Things that he hated yet were abundant in Detroit. To earn the $5 a day, workers had to live a wholesome lifestyle. He created a sociological department to make sure his workers were living the proper way. Hundreds of inspectors were hired to visit the homes of his workers, to ask questions and inspect living conditions. They wrote a report about each worker and their family. They wanted to find out if the employees had insurance, a bank account, what kind of debts, how many times were they married, how did they spend their money. They would interview family members over and over and talk to the landlords. And, of course, they were concerned about drinking, smoking, and gambling, all things that Ford knew were wrong. Their home and yard needed to be clean and orderly. And, of course, they were always looking for signs of alcoholism, such as liquor bottles and such. He also had a school to teach immigrant workers to be more American, instructing workers in the English language and American values. In a way, he treated immigrant workers like cars on an assembly line. The program produced Americans in 72 lessons, taught in 36 weeks, two sessions a week, each lasting an hour and a half. Ford believed he could create a solid moral foundation for America's new working class. Ford said, These men of many nations must be taught American ways, the English language and the right way to live. Ford believed in a sole male breadwinner who was moral and was able to raise responsible children. The bottom line was, if you didn't live the life that Ford thought was appropriate, you were fired. If inspectors came to your home and didn't like what they saw, they gave you a chance to fix the problem. But if they came back and things hadn't turned around, you were gone. Basically, it was Ford's way or the highway. By the 1920s, Ford had almost single-handedly brought America into the industrial age. His factories in Michigan, which were the largest on the planet, produced 4,000 cars a day. He was now one of the world's richest men. He just needed to do something about the rubber. So in 1927, Ford decided to do something about it, to start his own rubber plantation in the jungles of South America. But he wanted to do more. He wanted to create the perfect utopian small-town American city that he believed his automobile helped destroy. It would be wholesome with no drinking, smoking, or womanizing. But more importantly, it would have none of that modern dancing that he hated so much. Dancing in the 1920s, he thought, had become way too sexual, in Ford's mind, only square dancing was proper. Ford made a deal to receive an area of about 2.5 million acres called Boa Vista, about the size of Connecticut. The agreement exempted Ford from taxes on the exportation of goods produced in Brazil in exchange for 9% of the profits. Work on the city began in 1926 as Ford sent a hand-picked team of men, who some have accused of being incompetent, to the jungle. Due to Ford's hatred of experts, the men he sent had no experience, knowledge of the jungle, or agriculture. So, of course, there were problems right from the start. With no roads, the area was only accessible from the Tapajos River, a tributary of the Amazon. Many workers succumbed to yellow fever and malaria. But they chopped, burned, and bulldozed the forest to create more of a farming situation where trees could be planted in rows like corn grown in the USA. 
Now, to clear land in the Amazon, it needs to be done in the dry season, not during the rainy season, which is what Ford's men did. So before the new trees could grow, the heavy jungle rains began to wash away the vital topsoil. Typical American homes were built. There were hospitals, schools, libraries, hotels, and a large 150-foot-high water tower that proudly displayed the name Fordlandia. The town also had clean roads, shops, a town square, and activities included a weekly square dance. There were movies, tennis courts, a swimming pool, a playground, and a golf course. And the main form of transportation in Fordlandia was, of course, the Ford Model T. Ford announced to the press, We are not going to South America to make money, but to help develop that wonderful and fertile land. He provided decent wages, excellent benefits, and health care. Oh, the health care part? That wasn't a benefit. That was a requirement. Of course, there were two separate living areas. The men from Michigan had the better homes, with the best view of the cities, and with clean running water. Homes built for the Brazilians weren't as nice, and they would get their water from a well. And the city would be tobacco and alcohol-free. This prohibition resulted in bars and brothels popping up in nearby areas. Eventually, a nearby island, out of the range of Fortlandia, became known as the Island of Innocence because there, well, no one was innocent. It was a place for gambling, booze, and women. Just like in Michigan, he had inspectors visit the homes of his employees. They checked on how organized the homes were and to enforce the rules. Ford was used to mass production, so he planted the trees with that in mind. They were grown like crops in the USA, in rows, but that was a problem. See, rubber trees naturally grow apart from each other to protect them from plague and disease. Now, when the British planted trees in Asia, they could plant them in rows because, well, Asia's far away from all the tree's natural predators, but not so much in the jungle. So after about seven years, when the trees grew large enough so the upper branches touched, it created a canvas over the land, more like a giant incubator, which was the perfect breeding ground for things like caterpillars who loved to eat the plants. And since the trees were so close, they could easily make it from one tree to another. There were red mites, white flies, black ants, spanworms, moss, green roaches, grasshoppers, locusts, and more that constantly threatened the trees. And there was Microcyclus ulei, and I hope I pronounced that right, which is a harmful rubber tree fungus. It spread throughout the plantation, stripping trees of their leaves. Like the men in Ford's Michigan factories, the Brazilians were required to work by the clock. On top of the 150-foot-high water tower was a loud, piercing whistle that could be heard for miles. It told the men when it was time to go to work, when it was time to eat their lunch, and when it was time to go home. The men used a punch clock that recorded the times they worked during the day. And the day, just like back in the States, would be eight hours from nine to five. This was a problem as well. See, working from nine to five wasn't pleasant in the hot jungle. In the jungle, unlike Michigan, it gets hot and humid during the day. And the Brazilians weren't used to working that way. 
They would work in the mornings and then in the evenings when the sun wasn't overhead. The middle of the afternoon was almost unbearable, and that caused tension between the workers and the managers. The people of the Amazon had never seen a clock or heard a buzzer before. They didn't work that way. There were times of the year when harvesting rubber was possible, like during the dry season. During the rainy season, it was almost impossible. In other words, the indigenous people worked with nature to get things done. The Ford engineers didn't understand that and wanted the men to work like the men did back in Detroit, eight hours a day, 52 weeks a year. Like I said, the health care wasn't a benefit, it was a requirement. The workers were required to give blood tests to test for diseases. They were also vaccinated against things like smallpox, yellow fever, typhoid, and diphtheria. At the end of the day, they were given a daily quinine pill. This was to treat malaria and bibiosis. Many resisted swallowing the pill because it would often cause nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, skin rashes, and nightmares. Often workers would not swallow the pill. They would hide it under their tongues and spit it out later. Now, in the early days of Fordlandia, there were strikes, knife fights, and riots. Writer and historian Greg Grinland referred to it as Deadwood in the Amazon. But by the end of 1930, things had calmed down and, and the people seemed to go into a regular daily routine. The armed soldiers that were brought in to keep order were thought not to be needed anymore and were sent home. Now you probably can see what's coming. The complete culture shift the Brazilian people were forced into living would eventually lead to ugliness. That started one day in a new eating hall. The hall, which the men were required to eat at, was built primarily to keep them from going to bars and bordellos and the cost of their food was deducted from their salary. It was a situation in which they were told, you must eat here, and we're going to charge you for the food. And, of course, they were forced to eat the food Henry Ford thought was good for them, things like oatmeal and canned peaches. The workers hated standing in line for the cafeteria-style food and resented the fact they couldn't spend their money the way they pleased. The day of the trouble was quite hot, and the men in line for food started to get angry. Now, the men were required to wear ID badges, and as they entered the building, the number of each badge was written down for the records. On this day, it seemed to be taking a long time to record each man's ID number, and inside, the cook couldn't keep up with the food, which slowed things down even more. It didn't help that the concrete building with the metal roof turned the cafeteria into an oven under the hot sun. The men started pushing to get in, and one yelled, We are not dogs! Out of frustration, one man took off his badge and handed it to Kaj Ostenfeld, who was the man in charge and the man who created the new cafeteria plan. When Ostenfeld began to laugh, that was the last straw. The workers began to rebel. There were sounds of breaking pots, glass, plates, sinks, tables, and chairs. More men showed up. They were carrying knives, rocks, pipes, hammers, machetes, and clubs. One yelled, Let's break everything! Let's get a hold of Ostenfeld! Unknown to them, Ostenfeld quickly jumped into a truck and escaped. But the men went into a rampage, breaking everything they could find. 
They destroyed an office, the powerhouse, a sawmill, garage, radio station, and more. They cut power, smashed windows, dumped a truckload of meat into the river. Fires were lit, company records destroyed. Every Ford truck was demolished, windshields smashed, gas tanks punctured, and tires knifed. And, of course, every time clock was smashed. The Ford men ran for their lives as the order was given to evacuate. Some of the workers went to a nearby town and brought back liquor. So soon, many of the rioters were also drunk. One hollered, Brazil is for Brazilians! Kill all Americans! While all Americans were able to escape unharmed, the destruction continued throughout the night. A day later, a military detachment arrived and things calmed down. Workers were allowed to air their grievances, and on top of that list was Ostenfeld's firing. Now, the thing about Ford is he hated unions, and he was having trouble back home with them. He called unions the worst thing that ever struck the earth. Because of this, no demands were met, and most of the men were fired from Fortlandia. The cost to rebuild the town was estimated at $25,000. Fortlandia was rebuilt, and this time they made an effort to correct those mistakes of the past. The living conditions were improved for the workers, including better housing. But still, there was failure after failure. In one instance, every man, woman, and child were ordered to go pick off the leaf-eating caterpillars from the trees. The caterpillars were then burned in a massive fire. The irony here is that in the long run, it probably made matters worse as they only picked off the lower, weaker caterpillars, the ones near the bottom, while the more robust, fit caterpillars high up in the trees were able to survive and breed. Ford even attempted to start a second plantation downriver, where he thought it might be possible to grow the trees the way he had hoped. But this, too, was a failure. By 1940, synthetic rubber was now available, so the need for Brazilian rubber was no longer necessary. Still, for quite a while, Ford didn't give up. Now, in his later years, Ford was forced to give up control of the Ford Motor Company because, well, he was out of touch and was having mental issues. So his grandson, Henry Ford II, took over. And it was his grandson who finally had enough sense to close the rubber plantations. In 1945, both towns were sold back to the Brazilian government for a loss of over 20 million U.S. dollars, which is equivalent to 284 million in 2019. In the end, not one bit of rubber from their plantations ever made it to a Ford tire. It is estimated that Ford spent almost a billion dollars in today's money on the project. And even though producing rubber never happened, Ford constantly tried to justify it by saying he brought the American dream to the Amazon. Fordlandia still exists today. The factory and living area for the Americans is overrun by growth, but some people still live in the home set up by Ford. At one point in the early 21st century, only about 90 people lived there, but it has started to grow. In 2017, the population was nearly 2,000 people. Among the present-day pioneers of the Amazon who are lighting the way for others to follow is Henry Ford. Ford's rubber development on the Tapajos River is an enterprise of historic proportion. Here, two million acres of jungle are being converted into a highly modernized plantation. 
capable of producing rubber on a large scale. Deep in the wilderness, this model community is self-sufficient in every detail. It has its own powerhouse, electric lighting, a telephone system. There are non-profit stores and shops where food and clothing are sold to the employees. A little bit before I go. You know, Henry Ford had some issues. He was an anti-Semite who was admired by Adolf Hitler, so, you know. And he treated his workers very poorly in his later years. Much of that was because he hated unions. And he made his own son's life miserable. I watched one documentary on YouTube and somebody wrote in the comments section, you people don't realize how great of a man he was and all he did. Well, yeah, that's the problem. If you research all he did, you realize that although he did some great things in his younger years, I, he also did some pretty bad things as well. The question is, of course, can we forgive the bad things he did because of all the good things he did? And Well, I don't know. The thing is, children, at least in my generation, were told in school just how great of a person Henry Ford was, but I don't remember them mentioning the bad stuff. And the more I do of these stories, the more I realize that there is a dark side to many of the people that, well, are thought of as heroes. I've heard it said before that, you know, it's dangerous to learn too much about your heroes because you might not like what you find. Anyway, that being said, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's story are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link on the Coffee with Jeff website. Remember, I can always use your help with my financial issues. You can do that by contributing to our Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com and look for the link. You know, other ways you can help is to write a review on whatever social platform you find this show. At least you can tell your friends about it and repost this on social media, right? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. I want to thank my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so very much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care and remain healthy. Don't be a hero. Stay inside, and if you feel sick, see a doctor. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee
coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Thank you.